0: Paramedic 43, District
1: 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello everybody, welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Casey Patrick and today I have a super special guest joining us from literally the other side of the world, so much so that I had to calculate dates and times from Conroe, Texas, all the way to Melbourne, Australia. We're lucky to be joined by Matt Wilkinson Stokes from the University of Melbourne. This was really, a, I don't know the right word for it, almost a, a unbelievable day of communication in the FOMED world uh, that really uh, too good to be true. I saw Matt's paper, Adverse Events from Nitrate Administration During right Ventricular Myocardial Infarction. A systematic review and meta, meta analysis pop across my Twitter feed uh, a couple of weeks ago in the morning, and later that afternoon, crazily enough, got an email from Matt saying, "Hey, got an idea for a for for your podcast. Love your podcast. Got an idea. Think you should talk about my work here." And I said, "Yeah, we absolutely should." The only condition I have is that you have to join us and tell our listeners about it. So we're lucky to have Matt join us from Melbourne, Australia, to talk about his recent uh, BMJ paper, uh, Adverse Events from Nitrate Administration during RVMIs. This is definitely a myth-buster type topic, one that we we love to sort of veer into those myth-busting worlds here on the MCHT Paramedic Podcast. So I'm going to let, before we go any further, I'm going to let Matt introduce himself to tell. Yeah, a little bit about himself and how he ended up working on this project. And and really, this is this is some great information for our listeners. It really plugs into some some old dogma and hopefully will make us a little bit more comfortable when we're treating acute MI patients with with nitroglycerin. So introduce yourself, Matt.
0: Beautiful. Casey, thank you so much, mate. I'm absolutely stoked to be here. It's uh it's really awesome. I mean, uh, what can I say? You've you've introduced me. Great. My name's Matt. I'm uh, I am on the other side of the world, down in Australia. I'm very grateful to have what's was probably the best job in the world, uh, in my opinion, working as a paramedic. Um, also stoked to be doing a PhD at the moment at the Uni of Melbourne. But um, this particular paper isn't actually on that. It's it's one of the three that was part of my honors thesis last year. And um, and I I didn't discover this topic by myself. I, I wish I could take credit, but one of my friends was discussing it and um, And the more I looked into it and the more it just didn't quite make sense. And um, one thing led to another. And all of a sudden I spent uh, a year of my life doing a thesis on it. And um, mate, here we
1: are. So that is that is just most excellent. You know, this is one that we talk about and talk about and talk about it through emergency medicine training, through paramedic school. We've got to watch out for nitrates and inferior MIs, especially right-sided MIs, you know, preload dependency, all those things that are sort of ground into us as almost, you know, just can't do, you can't do it. You can't give them, give them nitrates. You're going to bottom out the pressures, all these sort of boogeyman horror stories. But before we get into nitrates and RVMIs and your evidence, briefly explain uh, to the listeners systematic review and meta-analysis and what those are. That's part one. I'll make it a two-part question. And then springboard into that, into some of the issues when you started digging into this data and why some of the adverse events and some of the descriptions of what an adverse event is became pretty murky.
0: Yeah, absolutely, mate. I mean, the the whole kind of uh, question for the thesis was really just about uh, answering can I give nitrates to my patient who's having an RVMI, um, a right ventricular myocardial infarction? So we did a systematic review meta-analysis. And systematic reviews, um, for those who, who aren't super familiar, it's just a type of literature review. And unlike a traditional narrative review from back in the day, where an author just kind of comments on whatever papers they may have read and usually tosses in their personal opinion as well, Systematic reviews incorporate a whole bunch of different mechanisms to minimise bias. Typically, this will include something like an exhaustive description of the methods that are used in a protocol that's published before you start the study. Uh, There's a movement away from a discussion of theory to really focusing on the data and all kinds of little specific techniques, such as, um, for example, one that we did uh, pretty regularly was using two or more researchers who can't see what each other are doing to double do everything and then comparing the results. So rather than just reporting on the primary research, a systematic review tries to pull it all together to provide a really clear answer to a specific question. And then additionally to evaluate how transferable and how robust those results are. Meta analysis is an optional extra add-on to a systematic review. And it refers specifically to when statistical methods are used to combine the results from a bunch of different studies. So, I mean, look, if the fundamental aim of statistics is to provide accurate inferences about a population based on a smaller sample of data, then it kind of logically follows that as the sample size grows, all else being equal, the sample becomes increasingly unlikely to be affected by sampling error and increasingly likely to accurately represent the true effect size in the population it's drawn from. That's the core idea behind meta-analysis. Now, I just want to make one quick point here on on systematic reviews and meta-analysis. I often hear people refer to systematic systematic reviews or meta-analysis like they're a a magical solution to your problem. Don't be thrown off by the magic terms, systematic review or meta-analysis. They're just methodologies. And like any review they're still at the mercy of the underlying evidence. And in this particular case, as we'll explore, the evidence here is actually very weak. Also, in our case, the meta-analysis, it's only pulling two studies with 1,050 people. So as far as they go, it's not a very powerful meta-analysis. Now, Casey, the second part of your question you said was all the studies found, you said wildly different rates of adverse events, It's totally correct. I think um, the most likely differences, uh, cause for these differences would probably be due to the inclusion criteria in the different studies, such as how they defined hypertension. Do you define it as a systolic under 100, a systolic under 90, a systolic uh, of a drop of greater than 30 uh, uh, millimetres of uh, mercury, a drop of greater than one third of your systolic All of those four different definitions were used in different papers. And if you really dig into it, the results kind of suggest that there's a lot of very mild drops in blood pressure from nitrates. Now, the weird thing about having all these totally different rates of adverse events is it's not actually a problem for our study because our goal was to determine if there is a difference in the rate compared between different cardiac regions that are infarcting rather than just trying to determine what the objective rate is. So I can't tell you exactly how many patients have adverse events after having nitrates, but I can tell you that there's no difference depending on the region of the heart that's infarcting.
1: Wait a minute. So I'm going to go back to your systematic review meta-analysis piece there. But So this is is dogma that you're busting here, Matt. You're telling us that there's no difference in adverse events. The big one we're worried about, hypotension, when we give nitrates to... Right-sided, inferior, anteroceptal, lateral MIs, they're all at the same risk. And that is is the opposite of what we're taught. We're taught to fear the nitrates in inferior, and especially right-sided MIs, uh, inferior with right-sided involvement. But before we get into that any further, I do think there are two points worth emphasizing from uh, your systematic review meta-analysis description, and that is, The systematic review portion is just meant to streamline the process, to essentially blind it from the reviewer's point of view, and to make it as objective as possible and sort of leave that expert review portion out of it and try to get as data point specific as possible. And then the meta-analysis piece, if we're going to take studies and lump them together, if you lump together you know 10 poorly done studies with thousands of patients it doesn't suddenly make that data set gold shiny and beautiful correct if I, would i would you agree with that mate
0: you're absolutely spot on couldn't have said it better myself
1: excellent so let's let's move past the 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 data piece and and get into some of the dogma here with right sided mis and, and nitrates it often gets passed down in medicine someone then like yourself Takes the time to hike back to the headwaters to the source of this dogma. And you found the original source back in back in 1989. And like many of these dogma sources, the supporting evidence is often weak at best. Talk a little bit about that study, Matt, and where some of the contraindication fears came from. Yeah, when considering right-sided MIs and, and nitrates.
0: Absolutely where it really kicks off is from a single 1989 study of 40 patients by uh it's it's by ferguson et al so you'll hear me toss that name out from time to time look it's a really landmark study and it's had a massive impact on the literature it was actually cited by the american heart association in its inaugural 1996 uh ami guidelines however It's got a few limitations. So first of all, like I just said, small sample size of 40. The authors themselves actually say that we need, quote, larger prospective randomized studies. Uh, Of course, that never happened. Second, the route of administration of nitrates includes oral, sublingual, transdermal, and intravenous, with no information provided on how many patients received each route, the dosage they received, or which of these patients experienced hypertension. I mean, like, look, The dosage in particular is very critical because as the saying goes, uh, dosis sola facet venenum, all medicines are poisons at high enough levels. On top of that, no information is provided on the onset, severity, and duration of hypertension. They actually state that hypertension usually occurred within 30 minutes. And that usually worries me a little bit too because giving the extremely short onset and half-life of most formulations and routes of administration – It's concerning that the hypertension might be due to unrelated factors and erroneously attributed to the administration of nitrates. But since there's just no information provided, I can't kind of retrospectively go back to determine the causality. So it's a classic study. It's important, but it's really only a starting point. And these days, there are many far better studies to base our practice on.
1: And they said it themselves. They said, what do we need? We need larger studies with increased... Patient numbers. They they said it in their own study. This is always amazing to me. And there are lots of guidelines out there that folks can go back to the guidelines and pick out these landmark studies and say, "Wait a minute, this is great initial research." I, I as someone who's dabbled in this world, I, you know, 40 patient studies that can take months and years to put together. So this is no knock on their original study, but to draw these huge conclusions and huge inferences from 40 patients just is not a very solid foundation to be standing on. And when you when you really think about it, it's amazing that that's perpetuated over decades. I mean, we're talking about 30 plus years now, and that original AHA recommendation came from a 40-patient study with no documentation of clear route of administration or dosage administered. If that was 30 of those 40s got IV nitrates, then it's entirely not applicable to 99% of the pre-hospital world. And we could just totally take it and throw it out. So maybe maybe all 40 were sublingual and it applies more than we think. We just don't know. There's no way to know. And then dosage, sure. Did you get three tabs, one tab, six tabs, 400 micrograms iv uh, an inch of sub sublingual paste uh, or uh, excuse me transdermal paste who knows and and then lastly that 30 minute time period is huge nitrates are super short acting so if a patient with an acute mi has a hypotensive episode 30 minutes after nitrates it may have just been because they're having an acute mi and they're in cardiogenic shock it may have had nothing to do with the nitrates all details that would be worth parsing out in a larger prospective paper with better eye to detail. So I think that's what the authors themselves said they needed. Somehow, some way these get caught up in these guidelines and get perpetuated. I don't know that anybody uh, can explain that. Let's get into right ventricular MIs in detail, change gears a little bit, and talk about right-sided leads. I have admittedly stated before that Right-sided leads don't often add to my decision process when I already see an inferior MI. However, sometimes right ventricular MIs are isolated. How often are these isolated? Matt, which leads are best? How do you how do you actually you know in the uh, nuts and bolts of of putting the leads on? How do you put them on? Where do you put them? And once we get them on, how much ST elevation do we need? Because these these Are these treated as a limb lead? Are they treated as a precordial lead? Uh, Give the the listeners some details about right ventricular MIs and how we actually find them.
0: Yeah, absolutely, mate. And it's a great question, and you are totally right. If you already have ST changes, you're already on that OMI or that STEMI pathway, uh, and it's not going to change your management. The catch here is that about 3% of all MIs are isolated right ventricular that may not show up on a standard 12 lead. There's some great work by the legendary uh Stephen Smith of Dr. Smith's ECG blog fame, which shows that the way we often guess if an RVMI is present, uh, the common ones kind of been ST elevation in V1, in lead one, in lead three, more in lead three than in lead two. They're all pretty poor. The best of these is ST elevation in lead three greater than lead two, but that one still only has a sensitivity around the 75% mark. So you're missing a quarter of RVMIs. Now, if you multiply that by a large enough population, there's probably an awful lot of isolated RVMIs that aren't getting diagnosed as quickly. I mean, hopefully, of course, they're, they've been treated as potential OMEs, troponins are eventually being done, and it, it isn't changing their ultimate clinical care, but it's probably still a good idea to take V5R for probable ACS patients who look sick when there isn't an inferior, because having the grounds to provide out-of-hospital lysis or to say those incredible words STEMI to a receiving cardiologist can totally change how rapidly a patient makes it to definitive care, and that should be part of our job. Now, for the spotting it side of things, you can do either V4R or V5R. V5R is technically better by a tiny bit with a sensitivity of 87%, a specificity of 100%. I mean, you know, you're know, you not going to see anything else from that angle. It's got a positive predictive value of 100, a negative predictive value of 94. But really, the V4R and the V5R are much of a muchness. And it's important to remember, you don't need a contiguous lead. It's only the one dot, and you only need ST elevation greater than one millimeter, rather than the larger amounts we normally need on our precordial leads. You know, it's it's such an interesting point because I sometimes wonder how many of these I could have missed. Um, I can't remember if it was like uh, Osler or McRae, but some famous doctor somewhere once said, more is missed by not looking than not knowing. And uh, this might be one of those cases.
1: Yeah, honestly, I will say that I have done a bit of a 180 after putting this together, looking at your work, you know, sending these emails back and forth. Right-sided leads were taught to me in conjunction, in direct conjunction with the inferior MI picture. And I just got to, over the years, saying, you know what, if I see ST elevation in two, three, and AVF, I'm moving on to the activation process, the second IV, the pads on. I don't really want to mess around with moving leads and interpreting a second tracing because I already know what direction this patient is going in. There's no Therapeutic momentum change if I see right-sided ST elevation or not. My momentum's moving forward. I'm activating. I'm putting out my safety net. It's this is just a, an academic, for lack of a better term, waste of time. But the way this has reframed it, and this is why we read and why we talk and why we discuss and why continuing education is important is going back and looking at, you know, looking at Dr. Smith's numbers and You know, for the MCHD listeners, we talked a lot about the shifting paradigm from STEMI to occlusion MI and non-occlusion MI. Is this accepted by all cardiologists out there? Not yet. But I will tell you that if you have a patient that looks bad, that's diaphoretic, that's got a great chest pain story, that's short of breath, that's got all the risk factors, and you get your 12 lead and you see no clear ST elevation MI, but you think, man, This just doesn't look right. This doesn't smell right. I think this is occlusion MI. And you get a picture of V4R and or V5R, and you see a single spot of ST elevation, one millimeter or greater. And you take that to the cardiologist and say, hey, I've got right-sided positive ST elevation. This is STEMI activation. That still falls within STEMI paradigm. That still falls in the old school way of thinking about ECG interpretation. So even if you've not progressed from STEMI to Omi-Nomi, that still could answer your question in 3% of cases. Now, I've not seen 30,000 STEMIs in my career, but I've seen enough that 3% would be a significant number. And it worries me looking back at my own practice that there's been some of those nasty chest pains out there that I've chalked up as in STEMIs that I probably should have taken the time to gather some right-sided information to rule out that isolated RVMI. So I, you know, I'm going to change my practice pattern after this discussion and after putting this together, not in the patients that I already see STEMI on or occlusion MI on, but the ones where I don't see STEMI and I suspect occlusion MI may, may still be present. Would you say that's a, an adequate summary, Matt? Is that how you would do it in your practice? Mate?
0: Absolutely. That's exactly what I do these days. And, um, Again, I'm with you. It uh, it was not something that I would routinely do until I literally did this research myself and thought, "Oh man, I really need to change what I'm doing because it's not going to be a lot of patients, but every once in a while there will be one in there, and I think for that one person, it's worth taking that extra, you know, minute to uh to pop one extra dot on and hit the button a second time."
1: So let's talk about the rate of adverse events in the various regions real quick like just to hit on a little bit of of your data and talk about a how often we see potential adverse events with with nitrates in MIs in general and then really talk about nitroglycerin as a whole and this is this is one where I've changed my personal practice with sublingual nitroglycerin in chest pain over time. Really, because asking the question, is it ever diagnostic or life-saving? I'll let you have that one. I have my own own thoughts. And flip the script a little bit and say, which MI type is nitroglycerin actually the safest in based on your data? Because looking through your paper, this was maybe one of the more surprising points beyond that 3% isolated RVMI point. So take those in a group, separate them out, and we can delve into each one
0: absolutely mate and and I'll agree that last one mate it surprised me too i was <laughs> i was absolutely i was shook as some of my patients say when um when i found that out so uh, your first point there was what what are the different rates of adverse events look it ranges from zero uh, studies which have given uh, nitrates to rvmis and found no adverse events at all in fact have found benefits um for example there was one which did inhaled nitric oxide that's not something i carry myself but they do carry it for example in the in the uk and you'll be able to tell me if if you um you guys are using it over there um but uh but that one i mean the if you get if you're taking it uh inhaled it binds to erythrocytes and it's inactivated really quickly so its effect is really just limited to the pulmonary circuit it doesn't have this systemic vasodilation effect it just pulmonary vasodilates and that's exactly what an RVMI patient needs, because you're going to reduce your RVMI afterload and actually decrease the workload of the heart. It's it's perfect. So I mean, for for RVMI patients, inhaled nitric oxide is probably actually a good thing. So we're not only not finding rates of adverse events, it's it's probably beneficial. On the other side, that paper I mentioned from 1989, that found adverse event rates of 88%, which is through the roof you would you would never give a treatment to someone if it's 88% of people are having uh, adverse events unless it was a life-saving and the adverse events were really rare and blah 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 but the re- the bigger reliable studies they all found rates that were around the 6 to 8% mark so look like i said before the data is not good based on what we currently have i think a realistic guess is somewhere in the 6 to 8% mark that's what kind of rate of adverse events we're looking at. Now, your second question was: is it ever diagnostic or life-saving? Absolutely brilliant question. And um, and one which again has has changed my practice. On the life-saving side, uh, sadly, no. We have three randomized control trials all showing no impact on mortality from nitrates. If you dig into it a little bit, you'll see that one trial did find a decrease in infarct size and another trial, the um, NACIAM trial found that GTN combined with N-acil uh, uh, cysteine also decreased your infarct size. So there might be some marginal benefits that are yet to be teased out, but no impact on mortality from what we can currently see. Why there's no impact is unknown. Um, It could potentially be that due to the impact of of coronary steel, which is where the dilation in the non-lesion arteries results in a decreased perfusion beyond the lesion, it kind of sucks the blood flow away from the infarcting area, that cancels out the benefits of a decreased cardiac workload. So the benefit of nitroglycerin at the moment is limited to analgesia of angina. From a clinical perspective, the benefit of that analgesia And the potential reduction in sympathetic stimulation it provides you've got to balance that against the risk of transient hypertension that's our challenge as clinicians on the diagnostic side uh, that is also sadly a no if your patient feels better after gtn that does not mean that they're having an mi the likelihood ratio is 1.1 between 0.93 and 1.3 the For those of you who aren't familiar with likelihood ratios, a likelihood ratio of one means that there is no difference. Uh, So it's just totally useless. We usually use greater than 10 or less than 0.1, considered good for diagnostics. So if a patient has GTN and feels better, the only thing that that means is that they feel better, nothing else. And the very last point you mentioned, what type of MI is... Uh, nitrates actually safest in believe it or not it's isolated inferior mi this is potentially important because i've seen a few places that contraindicate nitrates during all inferior mis for fear that the inferior may also include an rvmi whose identification might be missed but these places, by contraindication contraindicating all inferior infarctions in an attempt to avoid the forty percent that have a simultaneous RVMI, the nitrates are actually being withheld from the population for whom they're safest. That an absolute shocker for me too when I found it out.
1: So let's take let's take some points there. I'm gonna just uh Americanized the podcast here a little bit when Matt refers to GTN that's nitroglycerin. So just FYI.
0: Yeah, sorry, my apologies. All,
1: all the, all the non Aussie listeners and the non-British uh, uh, listeners out there. I will also say that when we talk about nitroglycerin having no mortality benefits, I want to make sure that I carve out my favorite patient of all, and that's the acute pulmonary edema patient. While we've not proven it yet, I still have a sneaking suspicion that if we get early IV bolus nitroglycerin on board to our acute pulmonary edema patients, our SCAPE patients, that we can improve morbidity and mortality in those patients. Some of the hospital uh, data is suggesting that and even some pre-hospital data. So we're talking about nitroglycerin here, not improving morbidity and mortality for acute chest pain, uh, occlusion MI, STEMI patients, which brings us back to really the, the crux of the decision in these folks And that is, we're really talking about a pain medicine, no more, no less. So our decision-making process in the emergency setting, especially when we have minimal information, shouldn't be terribly different from from when we were deciding whether or not to give insert narcotic, hydromorphone, uh, morphine, fentanyl. We want to relieve folks' pain. We want them to be comfortable. But in the setting of an, an occlusion MI, What we really want them to be even beyond comfortable and pain-free is hemodynamically stable. So it doesn't mean we should never give nitrates in acute MIs and in chest pain patients. We should just be very careful and know both ends of the spectrum are likely incorrect. It's not an always and it's not a never. And we should take our patients on an individual basis. Think about where their infarct is. Don't let the location of their infarct push us one direction or the other. But look at their other hemodynamic status pieces. What's their perfusion look like? What's their skin? Are they diaphoretic? Are they tachycardic? Are they significantly tachycardic? Are they bradycardic? And then how high is their blood pressure? Are they 99 over 55? I'm probably never giving nitrates to an acute MI that's 99 over 55. If they're 195 over 101, then we're probably safe in all areas of distribution. So it comes back to what's our best analgesic route? Would they be better suited for a narcotic? Uh, did we get our aspirin on board? You know, Let's concentrate on that first. Did we alert our receiving center for uh, STEMI alert, cath lab activation, however you call it in your system? And really the nitroglycerin is just one piece, an analgesic piece of that patient puzzle. Feel free to tag on there any, any of those points you agree with or disagree with, Matt.
0: Mate, you look. You're. A, I couldn't agree more. You're spot on, particularly about the skate patients. It's a perfect pickup, and um, and you're right. This isn't. It, it's. I'll just drill home that same point that you mentioned, which is we're not saying that nitrates are, are completely safe and don't cause adverse events. All we're saying is there's no evidence of a different difference in uh, across cardiac regions. So all your normal rules on decompensating or or unstable patients they still apply you're saving it for the stable, hemodynamically stable patient. Like you said, it's in this effect, it's, a, it's an analgesic.
1: So let's wrap it up. This First, before we wrap it up, I just want to say again, congratulations on your work. This is just excellent work from my standpoint. This is a practical topic that we talk about, we teach about, we've got burned into our brains. That this is the way it is, and it can't be any different than that. And you had the thick skull to go bang against the wall for a year and say, wait a minute, what does the evidence really say? And let's go to this paper and then let's look at its references and then let's go to these papers and then let's go to their references and let's look at these papers. Where did this come from? Where did the AHA get this idea? The almighty AHA, you know, and then to look back and say critically and objectively, hmm, maybe this evidence isn't that great. And maybe what we do have says the rate of hypotension with nitroglycerin in Myocardial infarction patients is somewhere in that six to eight percent range. If you had asked me, I probably would have said 10% based on my experience. Not that my anecdotal is evidence, but that passes the the proverbial sniff test for me. And that 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 kind of sounds right. 88% sounds insane. Zero percent, anytime I ever hear zero percent, I don't believe it because I don't see zero percent of anything in this in this crazy job that we have. So Just congratulations for taking a topic that is applicable, that's teachable, that really, really should open people's minds, open their ears a little bit. For me, definitely has been practice changing up to this point. I know that my rate of uh, right-sided ECG lead attainment is going to go up, not because I see an inferior MI, but because I don't see any MI, and I want to make sure I'm not missing one of those isolated. I'm also going to have no fear when giving it to the inferiors because I know that's probably the safest as long as their blood pressure and their other perfusion markers looks like that they'll they will tolerate nitroglycerin. So great work. Just kudos. Uh, Happy to have you on the podcast. Thanks for taking time for joining us here in the evening in Texas, in the morning on the next day over in Melbourne. Where can the listeners get a copy of your work? And you said this was your kind of your honors thesis you've moved into your phd process where can listeners get your work and what are you working on next what's your next chapter
0: yeah absolutely mate and uh, yeah i I totally forgot it's it's the future over here i can tell you you're gonna have a great day tomorrow it's looking good and sunny
1: sweet sweet
0: (laughs) so um yeah the paper's published in emj the um emergency medical journal so look, if you have access to subscriptions via work or uni or whatever, you're able to grab it there. If not, you can just shoot me an email. I'll be happy to send you a copy for free so you don't have to pay for it. Um, I probably shouldn't say this, but you also have my blessing to just nick it off SciHub if you want. I've got no problem with that. Uh, Next projects are pretty different. Um, One of the things I've been looking at recently is we know that the majority of EMS callouts, at least where I am, aren't genuine emergencies and that paramedics are increasingly doing primary care work and that with the right training and interventions, transport's not necessary for many of these patients. However, there's very little incentive for the EMS providers to invest in those services as the financial benefits are mainly felt downstream in the emergency department from reduced admissions. Now, we're doing some economic evaluations to discover the whole of system costs uh, from specific primary care interventions by paramedics in EMS so that we can hopefully use that data to lobby governments to invest more in these programs and to create a more efficient health system. So we'll see how it goes.
1: That is definitely on the front burner here in the States, albeit through different avenues and different routes with the behemoth that is the American healthcare system. But it's nice to hear that y'all are looking at the same ideas and that is the care that we provide in the field is valuable. The medics are often undervalued and underpaid and under reimbursed for those services. And we have to get away from the you call we haul mantra that is about as dated as right sided MIs and nitrates. So uh, we will gladly have you back on the podcast when you complete your next uh, step and would love to talk a little bit more operationally and financially uh, than clinically this time. I might have to bring on some help because that starts to get outside of my wheelhouse, but we're doing some of the same things in our service here at MCHD, some of the same things across the country. So kudos to putting the work in on that end, and we'll be glad to catch up with you soon. I will link Matt's email and the PubMed link for his study in the show notes. Feel free to contact podcast at mchd-tx.org as well, and I'm happy to hook you up directly with Matt that way. As always, Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening. If you have ideas for future podcasts, hit us up at the podcast email, podcast at mchd-tx.org. Leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcast. We have sensitive feelings, and they get hurt pretty easily when we get those three- and four-star reviews. So leave us a five-star review. Thanks, Matt, again for joining us. Thank you all for listening. As always, we'll, we'll be back again soon with a new episode. Have a great day. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, could be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to
0: all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod and compotech.com. Licensed under Creative
1: Commons by Attribution 3.0.